The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Again, open your Bibles with the book of Mark. When you get there, go to Mark chapter, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So this is a very, very short context, realistically. Um, as you can see on the screen, we've moved from the confirmation of Jesus from two weeks ago, verses 9 through 11, into what I'm calling the challenge of Jesus right now. Of course, again, the temptation of Satan is what is found in this. And uh, most of you don't realize this, and it, it doesn't matter to you probably very much, but what I've been trying to do with this, I've been trying to teach this class on Wednesday night, and then the audio from this class goes on a podcast. I'm trying to help some others with that. And then I make individual videos that are completely separate from this uh, that I'm putting up also to try to help some people outside of the church. I'm trying to steer that series of videos a little bit more toward the non-Christians so they can be introduced to Jesus through that. I only tell you that uh, because of the fact I actually got ahead of myself finally. I've caught up and I filmed the video for this context yesterday. And uh, when I turned around, got done with the camera, turned around, it was an hour and two minutes. And uh, so don't be scared. We're going to try to cut that in half or more tonight. But that's only to say that to me, and I know to you as Bible students as well, it just blows my mind how much information is tucked away in God's Word if we're only willing to examine it and continue to examine it. So it's, to me, it's just beautiful uh, the types of things that God can teach us in what we might call a few words. Um, you know, if you walk up to somebody and tell them something that only takes up what we might call two sentences, they may not get much out of it. But when we look to God's Word, there's definitely much there. So we'll jump uh, right in, but let me show you this one more time. Um, I've shared with this chart, there's some printed copies of it available, I think, even still. But in this context particularly, it is going to be extremely important on your own time that you spend a little bit of time looking at some of those parallel accounts. Of course, Mark being a very fast-paced book, he covers this temptation of Jesus in only these two verses, verse 12 and 13. And you have to look to some of the other gospel accounts to get some detail in that. The idea being, again, that Mark's account is very, very brief. His entire book is very fast-paced. And so most of the detail that we're going to learn is going to come from out of these other gospel accounts. Matthew has an account. I think it's listed up here. Matthew has an account that basically uh, goes uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And then Luke has an account that goes Luke chapter 4. And that's handy for me to remember verses 1 to 13. So you got 11 verses, you got 13 verses, you've only got two verses. And then John doesn't specifically mention this, although we don't think John necessarily would omit it if he were talking about it personally, but he didn't choose and God didn't choose for him to, uh, to pen words like this. So just keep up with those parallel accounts as we go through. Now, specifically here to begin reading the text, it's very short. Here's what the King James translation says to us at least. And immediately the Spirit driveth him out into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Again, Mark gives us no real indication of exactly what took place there. Now, as Bible students, you already know, you've studied, I'm assuming, you've read the rest of the story. You know, we do get a lot more detail out of those other accounts. So that's where we'll be going 
eventually. But before we move from that, we do want to take, at least I'd like to take the time to focus on a few of the details that Mark does give us that really give us a lot of insight. First of all is the word immediately. We've discussed that many different times. Uh, Mark's gospel uses the word immediately, often translated immediately, straightway, forthwith, anon. That's just the four English translations of a couple different Greek words. But he uses that word some 42 times. And so he is very fast-paced in this. Out of the 55 times that's found in the New Testament, Mark chooses to use it 42 times. And as I began to kind of back away and try to consider what that means, that doesn't necessarily, the word immediately doesn't have anything to do with the, the pace, if you will. Uh, but it does have to do with, and, and not the spance of time, but it does have to do with the specifics of it. He's not trying to get us to see necessarily how quickly things go, although that's sometimes implied. He's just letting, you know, in, in his mind and through inspiration's mind, it is what is next. And so he's going to what he considers very important events. And if you consider the word immediately, every time we'll cross it, it's been seen one time in this chapter already, in verse 10, or straightway, the King James translates it, same word, and then found here in verse 12, understand that what he's doing is trying to remind us that he's moving forward, but also, in my mind, connect us to what has already been said. So we consider the context just prior to this, verses 9 through 11, that was what the baptism of Jesus. John the baptizer baptized him. Those parallel accounts, we learned that Jesus did that in order what he said for us, quote, to fulfill all righteousness. He wasn't doing that for the mission of sins. But immediately after that takes place, which in most of our lives, our baptisms, I would think if we reflect on them correctly, that would be kind of the highlight. That would be the pinnacle, the, the biggest event in our entire lives. We probably should see it that way. Uh, but for Jesus, it was just the beginning of the next event. And that doesn't take away anything about baptism. That's just saying that Jesus is taken from a high point in life for anyone it would be, up and do one of the lower points in life that he would experience as far as his humanness, okay? His humanity. And so that's where we get that. Now, immediately it says, The Spirit driveth him, King James translation, driveth him, into the wilderness. Now, the other two parallel accounts that we're going to see, Mark's account, I'm sorry, Matthew's account as well as Luke's account, both of those, they don't choose the word driveth. They choose yet another word that is translated as the word led. So he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, one translation, one of those. The other of those says that he was led up into the wilderness. Now, is there any significance in that? Well, when you and I picture someone being led, we obviously typically would picture someone kind of being led by the hand. You know, if I said I'm going to help to lead my children across the street, uh, a rule in our house is at least they're going to hold my hand. They're going to hold my hand to get across that way. Uh, the idea that Jesus is being led into the wilderness by the Spirit here is an indicator here that Jesus is being moved in that direction. Now, ultimately, when we know what we do know about this, he's taken in the wilderness. He's ultimately going to fast for 40 days. While he is there, he's going to ultimately be tempted of the devil, which Mark does reveal to us. I can just imagine that none of us, given the position he was ultimately put up us, none of us would voluntarily, if you want to see it that way, choose to go into the wilderness. That may be, and I, that's my disclaimer, that may be why it is chosen a mark to use a word that is ultimately translated to be driven or driveth 
him out. And the tense of this word in its original language for driveth, E-T-H, is the idea of a present tense verb, which means that he started to move him in the wilderness, and he kept moving him in the wilderness. So you say, well, are you, are you gathering then? Are you assuming maybe, Jim, that Jesus was forced to go in the wilderness? I don't, I don't know that I would take it that far. But it very well may be the case that Jesus was moved to the wilderness, driven or led to the wilderness in much the same way as he was led to and taken to Gethsemane. What happened in Gethsemane when Jesus was there? He takes some of the disciples with him, some go a little bit farther. He ultimately goes into Gethsemane. He drops, uh, I would say proverbially, to his knees, not necessarily literally, but as he's praying to God throughout the night, there's something very consistent about all three of those recorded prayers. And the very consistent part of it is, is every single time, all three of them, he prays what? Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, would Jesus have chosen, if he had complete choice in this, or if he chose to choose, I guess you'd have to say it that way, to be crucified on a cross, or if you or I were put in the position where we say, you know what, I think it'd be a great idea, God, if I go to the cross on behalf of all these people, and that's just exactly the only plan that I would like to see, that's the way I want it to be. That's not even seemingly the way Jesus handled that. He asked of God, of course, being God in the body, but yet he asked of his Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass. So I can only connect to that and maybe assume that it's Jesus being driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, which you'll notice most printings, translations, capitalize that word. I think it refers to directly to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. As he's being driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, I'm not saying that he went completely 100% voluntarily, but I am saying this, he was led there and he was a willing participant in such. Now, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Or master. What does that mean? It means you and I at times will be in our wilderness of sorts. I'm quoting that. And we will be at times tempted of the devil. And in many times like as he was tempted in the areas we're about to discuss that cages covered basically. But he's being taken to the wilderness. So he's being led there. He's being driven there. And he goes into the wilderness. Now as far as the wilderness, the location of it, uh, pretty much everyone agrees that I was able to uh, get a hold to and read and try to, try to study under a little bit, scholars, supposedly uh, scholars in this. Everyone seems to believe that Jesus was somewhere, suggestively, outside of or on the west backside of Jericho. Now, the significance to that is we know well from other accounts, even which included Jesus, one the one I'm thinking of is the encounter that Jesus had, or this, the parable that he told about the Samaritan. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho was what? Extremely dangerous. You know, it was curvy, it was rugged, and, and you can still go and see the remnants of this road. Obviously, it's been improved some, but it was curvy, it was dangerous. There were wild beasts there. That's even mentioned in some of the other accounts. Uh, it was a terrifying place or position to be in as far as that goes. Now, we learn from the preceding verses, and I mean by that 1 through 11, that John the baptizer was also where? He was in the wilderness. 
And, and it seems to me that when John the baptizer was in the wilderness, as the scriptures illustrated to us, that people, the throngs, the crowds, the multitudes had come out to John the baptizer, and when they came out to him, they came as far as from Judea and from the city of Jerusalem, which seems to be on a map uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 miles. They came out there to be baptized of John, and Jesus pretty much, sort of, kind of, interrupts that. He comes along with the multitudes. And as we were talking about on last week, or week before last, his confirmation came about in the fact that they were at least able to witness, if nothing more, to witness his baptism and to hear from God in heaven that this was his beloved Son, in whom he, that is God, was well pleased. Now, when Jesus is driven out into the wilderness, the indication is he went farther than that. Jesus is not found in the wilderness as in the wilderness of where John was where the multitudes were present. He was found in the wilderness which is somewhere beyond that where Jesus was absolutely in human experience what? Alone. He's there by himself. So he's sent out in the wilderness. Now again, some suggest that that is somewhere in around the area of the backside of Jericho. Not, not couldn't prove that if I tried, but He's a ways out. And it is there in the wilderness, alone except for his father, he is found in this position. Now moving on here, just reading through verse 13 again, and we learn also that he was there in the wilderness for 40 days and tempted of the devil. How is it possible that God, Jesus being God in the body, being God as he was, John 1, 1 to 3 and verse 14 as well, how is it possible that God could be tempted? Let me rephrase that. Is it possible that God could be tempted? Well, we have to do this because if for no other reason, we've got what's written right here in Mark, and that would not negate anything else in the New Testament. Neither would the account from Matthew, neither would the account from Luke either, all three of which mention that Jesus was tempted of the devil in here. But it, some people feel as if it may contradict what we learn from James. James 1 and verse 13 is kind of the reference I pinned in as I was scratching on my own paper. James 1 and verse 13 says, No man can say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Next phrase, For God cannot be tempted, neither tempteth he any man. So this is one of those places where if you take Scripture and you take one verse or one reference or one section or one page off of your Bible and you read it and you have no other knowledge about things, someone could argue if that's all they had, they could say, wait a minute, Mark has to be wrong, Luke has to be wrong, Matthew has to be wrong. Somebody here is lying because James, who was an earlier writer, who was most likely in that case the half-brother of Jesus, he said that God cannot be tempted. Now the reason that matters is because we've got people... Cliff talked about them on a few weeks ago, who are uh, critical in their thinking. And they look at this and say, well, I can explain that real quick because Jesus was tempted in his humanity but not his deity. There's a huge issue with that. One of the other accounts we're going to look at says Jesus was filled or full of the Holy Ghost. When he came to earth, nonetheless, anyway, he came down as God Again, placed in that human fleshly body, John 1 and 14. So how is it possible? 
Well, it's possible and it's confirmed not only by these three gospel accounts, but as well as Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 is another reference you can kind of put beside that in your margin that talks about we have such an high priest who is tempted, watch this, in all points like as we are, yet without what? He was missing something. Sin. So the evidence is not just overwhelming, it is clear that Jesus was tempted. And he was tempted, yes, while he was in flesh, but he was also tempted as God. So Satan had the boldness, the audacity, if you want to call it that, to tempt, or attempt to tempt, even God. Where does that put us? It puts us in a very vulnerable, obviously, position because if he has the audacity to tempt even God while on earth, then why would he not go for us or go after us? But that's nonetheless about where he was. And then the latter phrase here we'll get to a little bit later, and he was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered. That means they serviced. They served him. And, of course, the reason behind that is clearly seen in the other gospel accounts. So take your Bibles now. You're in Mark. You can put a marker in there, what have you. But go over with me now. We'll look for just a quick moment at Matthew's account. That's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And we'll just notice a couple different details and a couple different variants that Matthew has up against Luke and up against, of course, also Mark's account in this and, of course, obviously more detail. Matthew's account in this, and you read a little bit of it with me. won't read all of it by any means. But Matthew tells us this, And when Jesus was led up of the Spirit in the wilderness... He was tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now, that's different from what Mark said. Mark says 40 days. Uh, it's added here that it's 40 days and 40 nights. There's no contradiction there. But you move on, it says, and he was afterward hungered. That's an understatement. And when the tempter came to him and said, If thou uh, be the Son of God, command these stones to me made bread. Now that's very consistent between all accounts. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Luke's account is going to say, But by every word of God. He doesn't specify it's out of the mouth, but that is an assumed thing as well. And the devil take him up into a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he saith to him, If thou be the Son of God, I'm in verse 6, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And on their, heads, on their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou at any time dash thy foot against the stone. Verse 7, And, and said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And again the devil take him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he saith unto him, All these things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Verse 10, And Jesus, uh, and saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. Other, trans, other account says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And then the devil leaveth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. So how many temptations are listed here in Matthew's account that Jesus was having to endure? Three. And that's what we're going to learn also in Mark's account. 
The variant coming up, and we'll see this, I keep saying in Mark's account, but in Luke's account being more lengthy, the variant here mainly coming up in the fact that Matthew listed him as being tempted of the bread. It's kind of generalization we make. In addition to that, he listed him as being tempted as far as going up unto the pinnacle of the temple. That's what Matthew lists as number two. And then he finally says that he took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms. That's Matthew's order. Luke's order is a little bit reversed from that. Luke starts out, as we're about to read, with the temptation over the bread. And then Luke says he took him up into a high mountain. And then Luke says he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. What does that mean? Bible contradiction? No. Has nothing to do with that. It has nothing specifically to do with the order in which these things are listed. However, uh, when you look at what we're going to tie to it later, which Cade covered already, and First uh, John chapter two, verses fifteen to seventeen, Luke's order aligns, I believe, a little more accurately with the types of temptations that he endured. As Hebrew writer tells us, Hebrews four and verse fifteen, he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. That's probably another way of saying categories, if you will. But let's look at what Luke tells us because he gives us a little bit more insight and specifically he gives us a little bit more information. So Luke's account now, Luke chapter 4, this is obviously verses 1 through 13. And I don't expect you to ever see this. I just wanted to put it all uh, there so we would grasp where we are. But Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 1, And when Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost, he returned from Jordan and was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, first of all, Luke is the one, that account, that gives us the information that Jesus was, quote, filled with the Holy Ghost. Is that important? It's important from the perspective that we know for a fact Jesus now absolutely had all of His abilities that God would ever allow Him to have. He was born as God, no argument there. He was born of God, the only begotten Son of God, no argument there, but he received something at his baptism which was referred to as the Holy Spirit, verses 9 through 11, and he's confirmed as to have all of that, his fullness, right here in Luke's account in the first couple of verses. Luke also detailed to us, as we read through that, just that little part of it, that he was led to the wilderness and he was there 40 days being tempted of the devil. Would a 40-day temptation, would that be difficult to endure? 40-day temptation would. Luke also lets us know, as well as Matthew did, that he was, quote, afterward hungered. Matthew, I didn't point it out when we were there. Matthew told us that he was not only hungered, but he did not eat anything. Have you ever encountered many people, I know there, there are plenty that exist, and especially in other uh, religious groups around the world, have you ever encountered anybody, maybe you participated in, I don't know, but who regularly fasted? A lot of people right now are fasting, uh, supposedly, I assume it works, but they're fasting for their health. You know, they got what they call intermittent or periodic fasting, and I don't understand how that works. I probably should learn, but uh, it basically means you just don't eat for a longer period of time, and that supposedly does something to your metabolism and, and whatever. It's a health, health benefit to that, supposedly. Others, even in our world today, they fast for more religious or spiritual reasons. So the physical and then the spiritual reason of that. 
The majority of people that I've met who fast for either purpose, particularly I'm going to tell about the spiritual of this, they fast for a short period of time. I had a husband and wife that worked for me back in the old days uh, in the cabinet business, and they fasted whatever group they were worshiping with, what have you. They fasted every single Friday. And I recognized it to begin with because I noticed on one particular Friday, they were just kind of sitting at their workstations. They didn't have anything to eat. And I came by and said, hey, do y'all not have any lunch? Can I help you out? Can I go get you something, whatever? Oh, no, no, we're fasting. And, of course, I got interested. Tell me about this. And they explained the particulars of that, how on Fridays they fast, and they fast from this hour on the clock to that hour on the clock, and they were not allowed to eat any food at all. And after 6 p.m., and, and of course there will be different details among all, all, but after 6 p.m. they could have water, and if they waited till 9 o'clock they could have fish, and they had all these very specific things. But again, that's for a shorter period. A 40-day fast, supposedly, medically, involves taking someone to the very brink of death. There are three Bible characters that are listed throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, as having fasted for a 40-day slash and or 40-night period. Do you know who they are? One of them was Moses, and he actually did it twice. The next one was Elijah, and then Jesus. That's the hell of four because of the two times. But Moses did it twice. Elijah did it once, and then Jesus did it. In every one of those cases, they fasted for these extended, long periods of time. Now, exactly how Moses went about doing that, the detail we don't have. Exactly how Elijah did the same, we don't necessarily have. But again, according to these three accounts together, we learn that Jesus ate, partook of nothing. That's hungry. That's taking things to a position which ultimately could have been dangerous. And by the way, I've jotted down in my margins those references. Moses uh, participated in his fast in Exodus 34, 28. 34, 28. I left my sticky note at home that has the other one. There's another one in there. I promise you, it's in Deuteronomy, I believe. And then Elijah took part in his 40-day fast. It's recorded in 1 Kings 19, 8. So I'll have to get you the other Moses reference. Of course, Jesus in these three gospel accounts or records. But he's there and he's fasting and he's also being tempted of this. Now, one of the things that I've... I was talking with Bill Camp the other day. He and I were together. And one of the things that I, I may have missed, I don't know, I have always pictured these accounts exactly like this. That is, Jesus was baptized. He comes up out of the water. He steps away, kind of vanishes away out of the crowds as... Often he does in the gospel accounts, but he kind of vanishes away out of the crowds. He's led, as the scriptures say, by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then I've always imagined that Jesus gets out there and he finds himself a, a good, good-sized boulder that's got a, a nice flat area and he sits down and there, here comes the devil. Well, the language doesn't necessarily indicate that, again, because the word led twice and the word driveth indicated that he was on the move. He continued to be led. He continued to be drove. In addition to that, here what we have is the idea that Jesus was continually in this fast, if you will. He was continually, over whatever period I'm not sure, but tempted of the devil. And he ultimately is tempted of the devil in what could potentially be at least two locations that were somewhat spaced, perhaps even three. We know for a fact when he was tempted on the first occasion... 
in, uh, concerning the bread, which I don't think that's the brunt of the temptation. We'll get to that. But when he is tempted with a bread, where most likely is he? He's just standing there in the wilderness. We're told that in Palestine, in and around these areas, and inside of the Jordan and such, and Jericho where he was, the stones oftentimes looked and do look now even like loaves of bread. I tell you what, I, I I've never been I've never been any any kind of fast like this. My record right now is probably four and a half or five hours. You know that's just between uh, lunch and supper. But uh, I've never been like that. But I've been hungry, so I thought enough till just about anything looks good. Satan says, if you're the son of God, why don't you just command these stones to be made bread? Basically saying you could do it if you want to. Would you assume Jesus in human form would have been more than happy to do that if it wouldn't have violated his, his uh, fact that he, he was serving his Father God and if the fact that it wasn't the temptation that was offered by Satan himself? I, I, I would have probably given it a try. But he's here in this wilderness and he's tempted of the devil. Keep up the reading. Uh, command these stones to be made bread, verse 3. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil take him up into a high mountain, verse 5, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All power I give thee, and the glory of them, for that it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, Satan speaking, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him into Jerusalem and set him on the, tent, on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, uh, the pinnacle of the temple, I, I, I probably have, have imagined that as a steeple. It's, it's not that. And it's most likely Herod's palace is what we're talking about here. It's somewhat uh, agreed upon that in the ancient palace in, of Herod in Jerusalem, that the pinnacle, and the Greek word references as well, is a wing of the temple. Some have reported that common nowadays, the discoveries they've made from what they think is the pinnacle of the temple or that wing, that area, it's about a 60-foot drop. Others say that in ancient days it would have been more like 600. So when he's tempted to take yourself and jump off this pinnacle, he's tempting him with taking his own life potentially. But what are the variants here? What are the actual challenges? We've got to move quickly. That bell said we did at least. I've kind of just put these together in brief. There's three temptations available here. I've divided them up into what I call the challenges. And, of course, for modern vernacular, the comebacks. How did Jesus deal with these things? Well, the first challenge was, as we just read it, it said, if thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Now, where did Satan get the idea that Jesus might be willing to do that? Well, I would say probably just because he had witnessed, at least knew about the fast he was involved in. But he has no real basis for that. And the, the comeback, if you will, that Jesus comes with is it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
by every word of the mouth of God or proceeding out, depending on the accounts you look at, the mouth of God. Could Jesus trust his Father? Yes. In reality, the problem that came up for Adam and Eve in the garden and the temptation that the devil, Satan, the serpent there offered them was basically, you know, we, we look at it and we say, well, what he asked him was, you know, would you be willing to partake of this fruit? Hath God not said this, remember? What was he asking them of Adam and Eve? Do you trust God? Do you really trust God? Can you really believe him? Guess what he's saying to Jesus? Do you trust the word of God? Jesus firmly says, yes. You can't live by bread alone. You have to live after the word of God. Now, Jesus gives scriptural reference for that. Cliff made reference in his introduction to Deuteronomy back on Sunday that all, many times, matter of fact, the majority of times that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, the majority of them come out of one of two books, either Deuteronomy on the one hand or Psalm on the other. In Deuteronomy is what Jesus quotes here. That reference is Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Jesus quotes that in a context, literally, where basically the children of Israel have gotten angered because they're not satisfied with the food that God was providing them. And so Moses comes to them, and Moses looks at them, just nearby to quote it directly, and says, we need to trust God, God's word. Now, was Moses saying, get out your Pentateuchs and, and look through the pages and see if you can find reference that God's going to take it? No. He's saying, we've got to trust God. You've got to put your faith in God for everything, and that includes the food and the provisions that he's giving us. That's the first one. We'll do more with that as well. The second one here, the challenge we read across in Matthew and Luke's account. If thou wilt worship me, and all shall be thine. Of course, he's offered him all the kingdoms of the world is what he's potentially offered him. Jesus comes back with this. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That's Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. What scriptural basis did Satan have for this temptation? None at this point. None. He just pulls this out of the wild air. Did Satan own this world? We're going to mention a reference. It kind of feels as if it contradicts it, but it doesn't. Does Satan own this world? No. Mm -mm. Any ownership he would have claimed, would have claimed, that's the key word, was taken away from him at the cross nonetheless. But he didn't own this world. Somebody says, well, you know, it is said that he was supposedly the God of this world. Yes, and the reference there was he is the God to those who commit evil. Jesus, in speaking to the Jews on one occasion, they were trying to pop their suspenders about being of the children of Abraham and claiming that Abraham was their father, therefore somehow that made them holy and pious. What was Jesus' basic reply to them? You're not of the father Abraham. Your father is the, the devil. He's your God. You, you don't serve Abraham. You, you don't serve the lineage that God set forth. That's not who you're following. You're following the devil in this. And then the third one right here, this challenge, if thou wilt be the son of God, cast thyself down from thence. Now this is the one time, and Brad brought this up on Sunday, 
uh, in Psalm 91 and verse 11, when Satan did pull Scripture out. And the dangerous case about this is Satan quoted Scripture accurately here. Precisely. What did he do? He spun the meaning. In verses 11 and 12, although he quoted it precisely, he spun the meaning. He tried to present this to Jesus as if it were a specific prophecy about him potentially casting himself off the temple and God bearing him up and not letting him dash his foot against the stone. That's the way Satan presented it. Why is that dangerous? Because that is what the false teachers of this world still do. You know, how many times have you heard someone uh, speaking about a certain preacher, pastor, whatever, and they say, well, you know what, I really can't deny what he's saying because he showed me a verse. He, he showed me right there. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. He, he, he told me that's what it meant. Does that make it right? His interpretation could be a long way off, especially if it's not in the context of God's Word as a whole. But those are the temptations that he was presented with. And so we are far out of time. We're going to stop, but we'll just pick up next week. Um, our parallel, and you already know this, is going to be going and looking at comparing these categories of temptation over with what is found and what Cade uh, went over with us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. So thank you for your attention. Any questions or comments? I talked really, really fast.